Though I think most of you were here a couple of weeks ago, or was it maybe three weeks ago, when I introduced the theme that we're going to be exploring for at least the beginning of this year. And it's a pretty broad theme centered around taking refuge in Sangha or community, which, as I mentioned last time, automatically brings in with it qualities such as dana or generosity and metta or kindness and kalyana mitta or dharma friendship. And in the last two sessions, Bruce and Natalie offered their own reflections on these themes, together with just acknowledging the passing of Thich Nhat Hanh, as you know, that much-loved Vietnamese Zen Buddhist meditation master who died recently. And I shared last time a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh on the importance of Sangha. And so I just thought to share that same quote again to reorient us to this theme because it's such a powerful foundation for this exploration that we'll be doing. So he says, A good community is needed to help us resist the unwholesome ways of our time. Mindful living protects us and helps us go in the direction of peace. With the support of friends in the practice, peace has a chance. If you have a support of Sangha, it's easy to nourish your bodhicitta, the seeds of enlightenment. If you don't have anyone who understands you, who encourages you in the practice of the living Dharma, your desire to practice might wither. Your Sangha, your family, your friends, your co-practitioners is the soil and you are the seed. No matter how vigorous the seed is, if the soil doesn't provide nourishment, the seed will die. A good Sangha is crucial for the practice. Please find a good Sangha or help create one. So in some ways what we're doing here is creating this garden, Sangha as a garden. We're creating the fertile soil for our wisdom and compassion to grow. And that soil is fertilized by those three qualities that I just mentioned. Dana or generosity, metta or kindness, kalyana mitta or dharma friendship. Now before we go any further, it also feels important to acknowledge that this idea of taking refuge in Sangha is not about avoidance or escapism. We're not just trying to make ourselves comfortable and cozy by ignoring all the chaos around us. So coming back to the garden metaphor, just like any garden, it doesn't exist in a bubble. A garden is connected to the overall environment that it's growing in. So it's affected by the weather, the climate, the health, or the pollution of the water and the air and the soil. And in exactly the same way, this Sangha here, Auckland Insight, it exists in a wider societal context. And that context, it affects, or maybe at times even infects, how we show up together. So right now, in this moment, we're connected in this Zoom room, and we're listening, to some extent, to this short talk. The world out there still exists to some extent. And maybe for some of you, it's a dominant extent. So taking refuge in Sangha is not about ignoring the fact that, for example, Putin has invaded Ukraine. 
with all the immense trauma that that's causing. It's not about ignoring the massive floods that are happening in Eastern Australia right now. And here in New Zealand, the rate of COVID transmission is currently the highest in the world. So there's a lot going on in our news feeds on top of whatever personal challenges we might be facing right now. So taking refuge in sangha, though, is not about somehow just shutting all of that out and making a cozy little bubble for ourselves to escape into. And while it's true that at times it can be skillful to temporarily take a break from everything that's going on out there, the sangha is also a community of people who have a shared commitment to waking up, to seeing clearly on deeper and deeper levels, so that we can free ourselves from unhealthy ways of being. And this process of freeing ourselves, it's often uncomfortable, difficult, challenging. But we, So we want to keep in mind that facing into that discomfort is how we grow, both individually and as a community. And a friend of mine recently reminded me how the Dharma can be approached as either consolation or confrontation. So we have these two aspects, Dharma as consolation, Dharma as confrontation. And I think that concept comes from Stephen Batchelor, but it's also found in the context of contemporary Christianity. And this idea of Dharma practice as consolation and confrontation has been useful in my own practice helping me to recognize times when maybe I'm getting a little too comfortable, complacent and then I can ask is there something I'm not confronting here remembering that the root of confront means to come face to face with so what am I not coming face to face with is there something I'm avoiding or ignoring or denying and if so, how can I look more deeply? So with that as the context, I'd like to talk more about dana or generosity, which in many ways is the lifeblood of the Sangha. As I think you all know, on so many levels, this Sangha wouldn't exist without that reciprocal flow of dana. So first, there's the generosity of millions of unknown people, people who have helped support the transmission of these teachings since the Buddha's death many centuries ago. And without all of their sustained collective effort, none of us will be sitting here tonight. And I always feel quite amazed when I think about that how it's possible for us here in Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand in the year 2022 to be exploring words that the Buddha shared in India over two and a half thousand years ago. How is that even possible? It's because there's a living tradition of people who received the Dharma, appreciated it, benefited from it, and wanted to share it with others. Generation after generation after generation over many centuries people helped to make sure that these teachings were transmitted and freely available. And eventually, all of us here are benefiting from that generosity, that dana, as we sit here this evening. So there's that broader stream of generosity that we're part of. 
And then there's a generosity here in the group, which, as you know, operates on a dana basis. So the group's run by volunteers, volunteer hosts and facilitators, and all the people on the guiding committee are volunteers too. We don't charge for the teachings. We don't even have a facility fee to cover the cost of renting the hall and tea and biscuits and so on, at least when we're meeting in person. All of it is freely offered and it's worked this far because all of you have contributed what you can. And it's easy to take that for granted, so I just want to acknowledge that, to appreciate and celebrate it. Because in the context of mainstream society, operating on the principle of dana is pretty unusual. And unfortunately, in some dharma contexts, it's starting to be eroded by pressure from the dominant values and pressure to survive in a ruthlessly capitalistic environment. And we can see perhaps a flavor of that in how that influence and how dana is often presented in lay dharma settings, where the Buddha's very broad understanding of generosity as a foundational quality of heart and mind often gets narrowed to just about making a donation of money at the end of a retreat or at the end of a teaching. Now, of course, this aspect of dana is very useful and necessary. As you know, I live supported by dana. So I wouldn't be able to be here this evening if it wasn't for the financial generosity of previous and current students, including most of you. But this aspect of dana is just one aspect of what the Buddha was referring to when he started all of his teachings by talking about generosity. To him, what's more important than the value of the thing being given is the quality of the heart and mind that motivates that giving. So he used a different word for this, and that word is the Pali word chaga, spelled C-A-G-A, and C is pronounced as C-H in Pali. And chaga is this quality of mental openness, heart openness, so willingness to share, and that motivates us to make a gift. So chaga is the spirit, the motivation of generosity, and dana is the thing being given, the gift itself. And as many of you have experienced, when we can orient to that quality of chaga, we become more open, more receptive, the teachings can more easily do their work in our hearts and minds. And this quality of dana and chaga starts to make available so many other really beautiful qualities, such as empathy and kindness and compassion, self-compassion, appreciative joy, gratitude, balance, steadiness, and so on. So this is another reason that I think of chaga and dana as being crucial to the health of our sangha. It's the lifeblood that that flow of give and take that circulates this mutual benefit for all of us. Now, perhaps that sounds good in theory, good in principle, but actual practice, as we all know from our own experience, it's not so easy to be abundantly generous all the time. So when we take on generosity as a Dharma practice, what makes it a practice 
is learning to recognize what are the conditions that support us to be generous and what conditions or what conditioning get in the way. So as we explore generosity, we start to recognize that each of us has our own individual conditioning, our psychological habits, our personal history, our temperament, that can make it more or less challenging to be generous, depending on the circumstances. We also have family conditioning, the culture of the family that we grew up in. So how our parents or our caregivers modeled generosity to us when we were children. But then on an even deeper level, beneath that and around all of that, we have that dominant capitalist culture that I think all of us here are living within. And this capitalist system, it has an insidious but often invisible effect on how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the world around us. So as I mentioned earlier in that metaphor of the garden of our Sangha, this Sangha exists within a broader societal context, in this case capitalism. And I'd like to focus on that a little more because the structure of our economy has a huge impact on the resources of time, of energy, of money, of material goods that we have available to share. And that basis of capitalism brings with it so many implicit values that in a way like the water we swim in or the air we breathe, they're often invisible to us. But they're or they're assumed to be well just that's just how it is, just just the way things are. But the Buddha's emphasis on chaga and dana and taking refuge in sangha is that it can be a powerful antidote to some of those more toxic values. So let's begin by just getting a sense of what are some of the values that come with capitalism. So just over to you, would anybody like to name what you see or what you experience as being some of the core values of capitalism? Nadine? Greed. Greed, yes, pretty obviously, thank you. Shay? Individualistic. Individualism, Individualism. yeah. Leodon, were you about to say something? I was going to say the cost-benefit analysis applied to um, ethical situations. Yeah, so the cost-benefit analysis that's uh, very rational but doesn't always take into account more social value, is that yeah in the terrain? Yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Anne? Um, wealth and power. Wealth and power. And uh, would you say an uneven distribution of those things? Yes, absolutely. The goal is to get them no matter what cost. Yes, to get wealth and power no matter what the cost. Yeah, thank you. Bruce and Jane. Um, the idea that <coughs> that we can um, achieve anything and the assumption that goes the full assumption that goes with that that we all that we're all starting at a level playing field. Mm. The myth of the level playing field and if you just work hard enough you can achieve your dreams. And therefore, if you don't, you haven't worked hard enough, clearly. 
For example, as some of you pointed to, capitalist economics tends to reduce everything to the monetary value of a country's GDP, gross domestic product. And it ignores so much that's of value that can't be quantified in terms of numbers, such as human well-being and the health of our ecosystems and the flourishing of the planet itself. And built into capitalist economics is the assumption that there should be constant growth and that businesses and markets and national economies should just keep perpetually expanding and increasing. But even people with no Buddhist understanding can tell you that nothing is constant. Everything has natural cycles of growth and decline, and expansion and contraction. And certainly as Buddhists we understand the truth of constant change. And yet that fundamental delusion drives our markets and the marketing industry, which in turn tries to sell us the delusion that we have to keep spending more money and acquiring more stuff in order to be happy and successful. And it tends to instill a sense of lack, of inadequacy, of insufficiency, not being good enough, that powerfully undermines our mental health and impairs our well-being. And of course, commodifies natural resources and drives extractivism, destroying the planet's resources with insatiable greed. And at the same time, this neoclassical economics, economics, it's based on a fundamental assumption that human nature is inherently driven by self-interest and that it's somehow just normal and natural to put short-term gain above the preservation of resources for future generations. But the podcast points to at least one research study, long-term research study, that really challenges that myth. And there are more and more people around the world who are exploring new narratives, new economic models, new ways of relating to wealth, to resources, to investment. Now I say new ways, but some of those supposedly new ways are actually very old. And I appreciated that towards the end of the podcast, there's an interview with a Maori equities fund manager by the name of Temuera Hall, And he has helped to set up one of the world's only indigenous and values-led equities fund. And it was inspiring to hear him talk about aroha in relation to financial investment. In my experience, I don't think I've ever heard those terms go together. So he says, when we apply our, indi- indi- when we apply our indigenous values, we're making sure that the capital is going towards doing good. A nice, easy way of thinking about it is anything that's going to poke a hole into the sky, into Ranganui, we're going to frown upon. Anything that rips into the earth, or Papatuanuku, we're going to frown upon. If there are no women board members, then that's a straight exclusion. If there are fossil fuels, easy exclusion. We look deep into the people, the policies, their messaging, their structures, to see if we can identify that their behaviors are genuine. In our language, we're trying to measure aroha, which loosely means love, but more correctly, it means to be connected closely with someone, where you actually then care 
and have an emotional connection with them. So I think that invitation to bring Araha into how we relate to wealth, to resources, to generosity, brings us back to where we started in relation to Sangha. And just as dana or generosity sustains that sangha, we might find some connection between them and the Maori understanding of araha. So practicing dana is an expression of araha, of love and connection. And in turn, sangha can be a refuge from those pressures and distortions of consumerism and capitalism and commodification and Sangha allows us instead to explore generosity as a spiritual practice. I don't know how it is for you, but for me, especially at first, it was such a relief to walk into a community where I wasn't immediately valued by how much I earned or what kind of status my occupation has. And to be in a Sangha where everyone is welcome to be here, regardless of what they contribute financially or otherwise. So Sangha can be a powerful antidote to the toxic aspects of capitalism and creates a field of sharing and mutuality where we can develop those altruistic values that prove, that disprove that capitalist assumption that humans are just inherently self-interested. So within Sangha, we can train in offering and receiving generosity to ourselves, to each other. And so that skill in generosity can then flow out, out into our lives in the wider community and be of benefit to all beings. So this too is an aspect of taking refuge in Sangha. So there's a whole lot more that we could say about all of that. But I think that's probably enough words for now because I'd like to make sure we have time to explore this together. So I'll bring it to a close here and just uh, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.